So a number of years ago, I don't remember exactly, but I was invited by uh, pa- a brother Earl Kellum. Many of you remember Earl. He was a missionary to Mexico for like 50 years. He's went home to be with the Lord now. But he took a group of uh, five pastors from the United States and five pastors from Mexico, and we went down to Costa Rica. And we went down to Costa Rica, and our purpose was to speak in some churches and then uh, put on a conference. So I was kind of nervous and intimidated. I'd never done anything like that. But at the same time, I was thinking, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. You know, us Americans, we're a Christian nation, we're a Christian country, we're supposed to go to these other places and, you know, teach them the Word of God and, and help them to discover Christ. And, and of course, th- th- we did that. I went to some small churches up in the mountains, and it was just an awesome experience. And then on a Sunday morning, I spoke in a larger church in San Jose. And after the church service, a few people came up, and, and some of, one of them, or maybe more than one, and the pastor were there, and they were talking about the church is going to send them out as a missionary. And I thought, how awesome. We're down here thinking we're going to teach and train, but at the same time, they're training up people to be missionaries. So I thought, that's pretty cool. Where are you going to be a missionary to? You know what foreign country she said? The United States of America. And I thought, really? You just want to get to America or the land of milk and honey. The reality is, there's some statistics and truths about America that really are quite scary. And we might sort of have an idea about this, but when you hear these numbers and you hear the statistics, it, it's, it's an eye-opener for me, and I think it would be for you. Because when I first heard that, I thought, why would you go to America? Well, first of all, listen to this number. There are two, over 200 million unchurched people in America. Over 200 million unchurched. What that means is the United States ranks third in the world behind China and India as the most unchurched nation. Number of people on earth. Isn't that astounding? Over 200 million unchurched people. We're basically becoming an unreached people group in certain respects. Now, there's over 350,000 churches in America. So it's hard to comprehend how can we be this unchurched people group. Well, the answer is over 200 million people aren't going to any church. Over 200 million people don't claim to be Christians anymore. We always hear that statistic that 80% of people in America are Christians. Well, if over 200 million are not claiming to be Christians, those numbers don't work. There's a lot of people who don't even claim to be Christians anymore, much less those that claim to be Christians that really don't have any idea what that really means. An unchurched nation. Every year in the United States, approximately 3,500 churches close their doors. 3,500 churches shut down. And out of this 350,000 churches that I just mentioned, over 80% of them have either plateaued or are shrinking. This is the America that we live in. This America that we're church attendants. You know, in, in 1945, which was right after World War II, they say statistically over 60% of Americans were churched. Regular attenders. In 1991, 49%. The number had declined from 60% to 49%. In 
a significant and serious decline, but over that many years, you could say, well, it's not falling off a cliff. Well, since 1991, the last time this was looked at was 2009, which is six years ago. It was down to 18% of Americans are churched. 18%. Attend churches regularly. Now, statistics can be really skewed. Some of the polls that are out there ask this question. Are you a regular church attender defined by do you go to church at least three or four times a year? So we got Christmas, we got Easter, and then there's a family funeral or wedding or something. But the statistics when that question is posed this way, are you a regular church attender? Do you go typically at least twice a month? The number drops to 18%. So, if that's the case, what form of evangelism is the most effective? And when I first heard this, I argued with it. I'd go to all the Truebridge pastors' meetings and I'd disagree with all the pastors that have been pastors way longer than me. Jim McCracken, who's been an apostle for many, many years. And I would stand there and have enough gall to show my ignorance. And the answer to that question is the most effective form of evangelism in the United States is church planting. Planting new churches. Planting new churches. Now you might say, look at, let's just use a little Ballotin for example. When, we, when this church was started, almost 30 years ago now, you know, other than they not really wanting us weirdos in their churches anymore, the question was, what do we need another church for? There's one on just about every corner. And we hear the same thing. And if you go to most communities, that's what you see. Churches here and there and everywhere. So why is it important that new churches are being planted? Well, a couple of things. One, new churches. Approximately 60 to 80% of the people that start attending a new church are unchurched people. 60 to 80% are unchurched people. In churches that have existed for anywhere from 10 to 15 years, that number is about 20% if there is growth at all, are unchurched people. Between 80 and 90% of those churches that are plateaued or maybe growing a little bit that have been around for 10 to 15 years, it's transfer growth. People leaving one church for whatever reason and going to another church. Church planting statistically in America is by far the best form of evangelism. The best way to get unchurched people people that don't know Christ, to come to a church where the Word of God is preached, to get introduced, to discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. Because I used to ask at that meeting when I would debate with them, I'd say, I don't even have it on my radar to want to plant a church. It's not even on my radar. Matter of fact, it's not even in my heart. My heart was this, and this is what I tell My heart is to see Victory Christian Church become the healthiest church it can possibly become. Doesn't that sound good? And it is good. It's great, actually. But I read this in one of the books I was reading this week. It says, don't let your church become a cul-de-sac. And I thought, what the heck do they mean by that? A cul-de-sac. You know, you go in there and it just doesn't go anywhere else. And a lot of churches, even good ones, can become that cul-de-sac church where we get so focused. And that's still my heart, to see Victory Christian Church be the healthiest church it can possibly be. 
But we have had prophetic words spoken over us as a church to expand our geographic vision, to look out and look beyond. Now, Lake Crystal was a little further than I was looking. But the Lord had a plan. He sent some people that grew up in Ballatin whose parents were involved as the pioneers that launched this church. They were part of birthing this church and they were living in Lake Crystal. And God started to move on a few of their hearts to have a Bible study. And because of the generosity of this church, this group of people right here, they, you guys allowed me and my wife to go over for almost four years now and start with a Bible study. And the, and the group grew, and, and there was another couple from Ballatin, Mark and Brenda Sanderson, moved into Lake Crystal, and they were there for a season, and, and building into the church, and a few other couples, and the Bible study grew. And then we had elders from our church going down there to speak at different times, to lay into the church, to speak into the church. And then it got to be, you know what? We need to have, be a church. So we went down, and we did some training, and put on some, a ladies' uh, retreat, and did these different things, all because this church was willing to send out our people to go help them. And then we thought, we took Ben Goodman down there, and there was a prophetic word given over the group. And we thought we saw a guy that maybe was the one to be the pastor of this group. But over time, and nothing against this young man. It's awesome. But we just begin to realize, this doesn't look like this is God's, God's man for this job. And that's when Peter and Tanya had received some prophetic words. They responded to them in obedience. Teachers in, Peter enrolled in a two-year program, and he is graduating this week from that two-year program. And Peter's been attending our elders' meetings for the last number of months, sitting in, and we're going to be going down and setting him in as the full-time pastor the June 21st. God had a plan. Did we see it all from the beginning? Uh-uh. It wasn't even on my radar till we got that phone call from Melissa and Corey. And we'd like to have a Bible study. And the people were from all different theological persuasions. And God just worked and brought it all together. So from a practical perspective, that's why we want to plant a church. It's the most effective form of outreach there is. And also, and probably more importantly, I believe it's a very biblical mandate to be about planting churches. Apostle Paul spent a whole lot of time planting churches. Granted, there wasn't one in every corner. But quite frankly, there isn't a Bible-teaching, a Bible-believing church on every corner in every community. Things have gotten so watered down in so many places. And churches that were solid Bible teaching have fallen into the trap of this idea of our culture that the church somehow needs to adapt to be relevant. And we do methodology-wise. We need to do things to be relevant. But the message is never irrelevant when it's the message from the Word of God. And when you start watering down the message to sort of think you're being relevant, you're becoming powerless and really useless and maybe even destructive. So we're excited to be planning a church. So I want to back up and look at a few things biblically, and then we're going to come back to planning a church. I want to start in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. And Jesus is asking the disciples, and they're talking and conversing, and finally He says, Who do the people say that I, the Son of Man is? Who do they say I am? 
Well, they say, well, some are saying you're John the Baptist, and some are saying you're Elijah, and some of the other ones are saying you're, you're Jeremiah, and, and some are just saying you're one of the other prophets. And he says to them, and he looks directly at his disciples and says, no, but who do you guys, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. Isn't it great? We're going to study about Peter, Peter. <laughs> All right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, and these are the key words that I want us to look at and we'll be coming back to, I will build my church. I will build my church. This is the first time in the New Testament that we see that word church. In the, in the Greek, it's ecclesia. And it's used here, and then it's used a few other times, but not that many times. And in the meaning of it, can be a local assembly like this. We are a church. We are a gathering together, but it also can be used for the worldwide church that's scattered across the planet. And actually, it can also be used for those that believers that have died and in heaven, the church. But we're looking at the local church, the iglesia, the In Acts chapter 11, verse 25, it says this, And he left for Tarsus, and he took to look for Saul. The church had been growing at this time, and he's going to get Paul or Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And Antioch was a ways north of Jerusalem, and the church had started and was flourishing there. The people were flourishing. And it says, uh, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable, num- considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So we have the church, that gathering, being put into place and being established. And then we see finally in Antioch, for the very, very first time, they're called Christians. And a Christian, it simply means a follower of Jesus Christ. And when we say follower of Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to, to make that way less than it means. A follower of Jesus Christ means this is the man I am going to follow. This is the man who gives me life. This is the life that I want to model. I want to follow him as my example in everything that I do. As a matter of fact, I want to follow him that I would become like him. And that should be the goal of every Christian who says that they're a Christian. I want to become like Christ. We're never going to be a God. We're never going to become a little God. But we are called by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's got us all in process, if we've truly accepted Jesus, is to becoming more Christ-like, more Christian, more like Christ. And then Jesus also gave a commission going back from Acts, where the church is established, going back into the Gospels, where Jesus is still on the earth. In Matthew 18 and in Mark, he gives what we call the Great Commission. And it's the, basically the go verses. He says in Matthew 28:18, when Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Go. Go and make disciples. I'm going to be with you. The authority I have, the power I have, I'm going to give it to you. Go. 
And in Mark 16, verse 15, he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. So there's this clear mandate given. Go and preach the gospel. Go and share the good news of Jesus. Go and tell the people about Jesus. So he gives the go message and then he says, Wait. Wait. So he gives the great commission and then he says, You need to wait for something. And in Luke chapter 24, Luke writes these words, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise my Father, of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Until you are clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many of you would say if you're clothed with something, you're covered with something? I mean, this is how I think. But I like chocolate. When I eat chocolate, it goes within me. But if I was going to be clothed in chocolate, I'd be one of those things, you know, where you get under the fountain with your little strawberry. And I'd be clothed with chocolate. I know it's a little ridiculous. But to me, sometimes I think it's so hard to understand the difference between indwelt with the Holy Spirit and baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want to be clothed with power. I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told the disciples, go but wait. For what? Till you are clothed with power from on high. Till you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, verses 4, 5, and then verse 8, it says, Gathering the disciples together, He commanded them, commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem because there's something really important, critical for you to carry out your mission. Wait for what the Father has promised, which He said you heard of from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Go, we have a mission. Wait, there is a particular equipping, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then the church was launched. And I want to look at that just kind of briefly, the launching of that church. You know, it, it sort of started, really, with a supernatural event, the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a, a religious holiday of the Jews. Lots of, of travelers would have been gathering in Jerusalem, much like they did at Passover. So there would be many, many, many of these travelers in the city. And that was the day that the Holy Spirit came, the promise came that Jesus had talked about. I'm going to go to the Father, and it's better that I go than stay here with you because when I go to the Father, I'm going to talk to Dad and we're going to send you the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that took place that drew a lot of attention was supernatural. They all started speaking in different tongues. And this supernatural event gathered some attention and it says there were some curiosity. 
There were a few of them that were kind of perplexed and confused by what was taking place. They said, how is it we hear these guys, these uneducated fishermen and a few of the, how is it we hear them all speaking in our language? And that's a good question. It's supernatural. But notice also what they heard them speaking was about the amazing works of God. A supernatural event. And there was that group then that weren't just confused. There was also that group that was mocking and making fun of them and accusing them all to be drunk at nine in the morning. These guys got to be drunk. This is ridiculous. You know, when God moves in the supernatural, it gets some people's attention and it's going to offend some people. God moves in the supernatural. What does that look like? Well, starting a church in Lake Crystal when there's a whole bunch of churches is is a supernatural thing. Putting that in somebody's heart is a supernatural thing. Why would you do that? Calling Peter and Tanya to to uproot their lives. To go to a village, a city, a town, a hundred miles from here, from family, friends, our church family, and go a hundred miles away and, and plant a church. And it isn't easy. And there are people in Lake Crystal that are saying, what do we need another church for? God moves supernaturally. And it's going to have people that are confused, people that are a little perplexed, a few people that are kind of interested, and you're going to have some saying, what's with this? Just like it was then. And then Peter stood up. Peter stood up. (laughs) And declared, and this is convicting from every preacher that ever has preached about this, Peter in a three and a half minute sermon got 3,000 people saved. We're just not as anointed as Peter. 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost were saved. In Acts 2, verse 38, 39, they cry out to Peter, what is it we must do after his three and a half minute message? And he says to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. You know, when Peter gave that three and a half minute message, it says they were pierced to their heart. That's a supernatural act of God. There is nothing that you or I can say without the power of the Holy Spirit that can pierce another man's heart. The Holy Spirit supernaturally can soften the hardest of all hearts. It doesn't matter. And in this case, it says they were pierced to the heart. And remember that what we read before in Acts, where God said, I will build my church. The Holy Spirit pierced the hearts of men and women as Peter was talking and the church went from 120 people kind of kind of hidden away in an upper room somewhere to 3,120 people. Just like that. And a few days later, we don't know for sure exactly how many, Peter Nutt gives another message, and this one must have been four minutes long because 5,000 people <laughs> got saved. And then when you read about this and you think about this, Remember that there were a lot of travelers, a lot of, of the people had come for Pentecost. And it, and it happened to be a Jewish tradition that you opened your house up 
to, to friends or relatives or these sojourners, these travelers, and you would allow, invite them in, the fellowship. You'd invite them into your houses. They would stay in your houses. You would share your food together, break bread together, and you would, you would go then do the ceremonial stuff that the Jewish people did together. But now all of a sudden, 3,000 are saved. And guess what? Their worship looked different. Church became different. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish temple, the ceremonial worship, the killing all the animals and doing all the stuff, and now 3,000 Jews gets, who have traveled to Jerusalem at Pentecost to take part in this, all of a sudden, church just got different. What the heck we do? What are we supposed to do? What's church now going to look like? We're used to all of this ceremony, all these hundred years of tradition. And there's going to be a lot of resistance from those that are really embracing the tradition and the ceremony. 2,000 years later, and it still sounds similar, doesn't it? It takes a supernatural move of God. He said, I will build my church. And church began in a new way, in a different way, completely different. And we're going to look at what it looked like. And this is what I, I pray for us as a church, that we never lose this. This is where the, the kind of church we are. And this is the kind of church that I hope Lake Crystal is and that Peter goes down and pastors and leads and nurtures and builds down in Lake Crystal. It, if you, I'm going to read with you a few scriptures that I don't think I put on a slide. But it's in Acts chapter 2, after Peter gives his message and the people respond, what must we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized. And then in starting in verse 42, it says this, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, a sense of reverence. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, unity, and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have a need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I will build my church. Now, some people get distracted and they miss some of the emphasis by looking at that and saying, gee, we all got to sell our stuff, our property. We're supposed to give everything to everybody. This was the first form of communism. Socialism began right here. That's not it at all. First of all, just from a practical sense, all these people were in Jerusalem. They weren't in their home. They lived out there somewhere. They came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And they're staying in our houses. Whatever the needs are, we've got to meet the needs of these people. They are now brothers and sisters in Christ. So they begin to share. This isn't something that we see that was taking place throughout the church and the rest of the book of Acts. But it was a necessity at the time. It would be no different than us as a church if we had a number of people came in and we said, there are some serious, serious needs here. 
Who can help with some clothing? Who can, who could put up people in their home for a few weeks? Who could help buy food? Who could do these things? And the body of Christ would rise up and we'd see people popping up like popcorn. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. That's what the church is about. That's where they were, what they were doing. A good example for us. But what I think is the important thing here is what they were doing as a group. Notice it said they were continually devoting themselves to. Continually devoting themselves basically means they were remaining steadfast. And the, the, the Greek words there, there's a single-mindedness, a single-minded fidelity or loyalty to this is what we're going to do. What we're going to do is the teaching. We're going to teach. The apostles were teaching. Are the apostles the only ones that can teach in the church today? No. Why would the apostles have been the primary teachers then? They'd lived with Jesus for three years. Taught at the feet of Jesus. 3,000 people, some have probably never even heard about Jesus except there was some guy crucified a few months before. And they're saying, we're going to give our life to this guy. We want to know all there is to know. Tell us about Jesus. And it said that was it. They wanted to hear the pure doctrine from the apostles' mouths. And as a church, there is a mandate as the church of God. We need to make sure that our doctrine is pure. It needs to be the Word of God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the fact that there are some things in there that it's debatable. We don't understand all of it. There can be some small differences. But on those key issues, those key issues, Jesus was born of a virgin, that He lived a sinless life, that He was the Son of God, that we are all sinners, that we're all saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. All of these things, they are essentials that can never change. Those are the doctrines that we cannot ever waver on. Because that's the kind of doctrine that Christ will build His church. So they are sitting at the feet of the apostles. And the apostles are teaching. And they're teaching people, they're mentoring people so that they can become teachers. Because this church is getting bigger. And bigger. And it's going to get bigger because He told them, you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you're going to teach the good news of the gospel. You're going to lead people to discover who Christ is. That they might experience the abundant life in Christ. You're going to teach them. And it's one of the essentials that we see the early church doing. The second thing we see them continually, steadfastly hanging on to was fellowship. The Greek word there is koinonia. Fellowship. It's an association, a communion with a group of people fellowshipping together, participating and sharing in something. Sharing. Participation. These people came together and fellowshipped. It's more than saying hi on Sunday morning. It's fellowshipping. It's inviting people into our homes, into our lives. What did they have in common to share with one another? Sharing all things in common. They had the same love for Jesus. They had the same forgiveness of sin. They had the same Holy Spirit living in them. They had the same calling to let Jesus be their guide in how they're going to live their lives. They had the same calling to go and share your faith with other people to build the kingdom of God. We all have that same thing in common. And that's part of our fellowship with one another and reaching out 
to the world. And if there are material needs, we're to share with one another. There isn't anybody here, no matter how poor you might be, that don't, does not have something. If there was a need, you couldn't give something. I just know that. We all have something. No matter how little we have, we have something if there is a need. And I know the hearts of many of you. I've, I've seen some of you that don't have much. With generosity, give more. Then my common sense and logic would tell me you could or should give. That kind of fellowship. Continually in that fellowship. And the breaking of bread. We can't tell for sure from the Scripture if that breaking of bread just meant breaking of bread at a meal or if it was what we would refer to as communion. But it's easy, it's, it seems interesting to me that in the Jewish culture, fellowship, inviting people into your home was very common. For a meal, very common. And in the Jewish meal, the Jewish culture, one of the first things you would do at the meal, their bread would usually be very crisp and hard, flat, that you could break. And part of their culture would be the breaking of the bread and the praying of a blessing. Now in the Jewish religion, they had their traditional prayer that they would pray. It's not hard for me in my mind to imagine those disciples saying, you know, it's interesting. He said, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you break the bread. So if they're going to normally, traditionally pray a blessing anyway, why not pray a blessing? Thanking Jesus, remembering what he did on the cross. But whatever it is, whether it's the fellowship and the meals together or more of a communion type thing and remembering and giving thanks and glory to God, thanking Him, praising Him for who He is and now what He has done through Christ. In either case, they were steadfast in the breaking of bread. And last but not least, maybe last and most importantly, prayer. They were steadfast in prayer. And for those of you that would get called on to pray and you'd say, geez, I don't know how to pray. Can you imagine these people? I mean, some of us came from denominations or whatever where we had a whole lot of memorized prayers. If someone would ask you how to pray, I remember in our house, if you asked me to pray over the meal, it would be, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these guests us be blessed. Amen. Much faster though. Nothing wrong with that prayer. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that prayer. But we would, no, 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 forget that. Just pray from your heart. And you'd go, what? Pray from my heart? These people were Jews. They had all these rote, ceremonial, traditional prayers. And all of a sudden, their prayer lives changed. All of a sudden, they had the Holy Spirit living in them. All of a sudden, everything that they'd been praying and believing about the Messiah had come to pass, and they now were part of His church. They had to learn a new way to pray. They were now praying to a personal, living Savior, Jesus. And that's where we are at today, a personal, living Savior. Prayers of thanksgiving, guidance, increasing the kingdom. And as they did this, as you read, if you could look through those scriptures that I read, a few things happened. There was a sense of awe and a sense of reverence in the church. There were signs and wonders in the church. There was favor with all the people. We're so afraid of offending. They had favor 
Why? Because they were doing what God wanted them to do, and He would bless it, and He would build His church. And it says, The Lord allowed their numbers to increase every single day as He would call those to be saved. You know, when we live like this as a church, and this is our format, this is our method, this is what's really, really real in our lives as a church, God's going to bless it. And the church will grow. And He will add to his, the numbers daily because He promised, I will build my church. And that's the model of church that we want to be. That's the model of church that Peter wants to take with him and grow and develop in Lake Crystal. It requires commitment. It requires sacrifice. If this body hadn't been willing to, out of their generosity, send us down there and do all these things, I don't know. What would God have done? Maybe to use somebody else. And we'd have missed out on the blessing. Because of your generosity, Peter's getting to go down there, not as had been thinking and planning for a, a good year or two, as a part-time pastor trying to figure out how to be a tent maker and figure out how to do the work of the ministry. He's going down there and going to be set in as a full-time pastor. They're stepping out by faith. And because of the generosity of this church, we are going to support him as a missionary, to a, as a pastor planning a church at a level of $500 a month for a year at least because of this church. So he can go down there and be focused as a full-time pastor. I think that's how church planning is supposed to work. God will bless that. And we have the confidence in Peter and Tanya that the type of church we just talked about here in the New Testament book of Acts is the type of church that Peter and Tanya have on their heart to plant and grow in Lake Crystal. 